0: I hope you have a Bible and that you will join me in Ephesians chapter 3 today. We're going through the book of Ephesians both in our morning worship and in our Bible classes, Um, and so I invite you to join me there, chapter 3, this morning. One of the things I like most about the book of Ephesians is that this is a very, very passionate letter from Paul. It's... It's a remarkable letter in a number of ways, but one of the things that's so fascinating to me is that you can sense and you can feel the passionate nature behind everything that Paul is writing in Ephesians. And it comes across in some subtle ways. It comes across maybe even some ways you don't see in our English Bible. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 1, when Paul begins to tell you that God has given us all these spiritual blessings in Jesus Christ... Verse 3-14 through 14 is one sentence in the original language. Paul is so fired up and he's so excited to tell you what you have in Christ. You've been purchased, you've been redeemed, you've been set apart, you've been made holy, you've been given the Spirit of God. <clears throat> and the poor guy who's Paul's secretary or his is, you know, is just sweating bullets telling Paul to slow down. Because he's just throwing out word after word and adjective trying to convince the church that if you are in Christ, it doesn't matter if you're Jew, it doesn't matter if you're Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're rich or if you're poor, if you are in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Paul gets excited about that. And it's so passion-filled that, again, in the original language, we don't see this in our Bibles, but the last two verses of chapter 1 in the Greek... Paul wants to make sure you get the point, and there are 11 uses of the letter P in the Greek language. You ever heard a preacher just go off with alliteration? The powerful purpose of the pouring out, and then they start making up words just to make it sound good. They're just throwing out letters. Well, Paul, at the end of chapter 1, is so excited to make his point that Jesus Christ is far above all principalities and powers in the heavenly places, that He just puts a bunch of peas in there. He wants you to hear what you have in Jesus Christ. He hits chapter 2, and He begins re- reminding us that, that God has brought us together by grace. He's made us a temple of the living God. This is a passionate letter. And then as chapter 3 starts, starts to unfold... Paul begins to offer a prayer, and then he catches himself. And he remembers he wants to tell you even more. Look at the wording, chapter 3 of Ephesians. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees. For this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner for Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. And then he stops, and he goes on to tell you something else that he's just thought of. And it's not until verse 14 that he gets back to where he started in verse 1. Because all of that between 3.1 3-1 and 3.13 is Paul starting to pray and then catching himself to say, but, but I want to tell you something more. Brothers and sisters, Ephesians is an extremely passionate letter. But the thing I like most about Ephesians is it's an extremely personal letter. For this reason, I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ and for your sake. There are some people you never expect to see in certain settings. They just don't seem to belong, or you don't ever expect them to be there. Have any of you guys seen the new Sprint commercials that's on TV? There's a there's the old Verizon Wireless commercials where the guy would come out and he'd say, Can you hear me now? You remember those? Well, Sprint has one up them. They hired the Can You Hear Me Now guy. And now he works for them. And now his commercial is He says, I used to ask if you can hear me now with Verizon. Not anymore. I'm with Sprint now. Because guess what? In twenty sixteen Every network is great. In fact, Sprint's reliability is now within 1% of Verizon and Sprint. And Sprint can save you 50% over Verizon, ATT, and T-Mobile customers. Can you hear that? <laughs> now, you don't expect to see the Verizon guy giving a commercial for Sprint. It's a great coup. It's a very, it's a very unexpected thing to find. There are certain people you don't expect to see in certain settings. Look, I never, ever expect to see Stephanie Caldwell or the Fear Helms trade in their burnt orns, come to the light, and wear crimson and cream. You just, you never expect to see that. They're set in their ways. They cannot be reached. You just don't expect to see some things. And I promise you, the people reading Ephesians would have been shocked to hear, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. I mean, this is a personal letter because when Paul writes this letter, <clears throat> the text tells us, it, it shows us he's in prison. Now, the conversion of Paul in and of itself is a remarkable feat. An old test or an, an old uh, New Testament scholar said that it would be easier for a leper to change his spots than for Saul of Tarsus to become a Christian. Do you remember how improbable his conversion was? No one expected this. So much so that when, when Jesus comes to Ananias in Acts chapter 9 and he says, Hey, Ananias, I've got a, I've got a home Bible study I'd like you to go tend to. Pack up your Joe Miller film strip and I want you to go study with Saul of Tarsus. You remember what Ananias says? I've heard of this guy. He puts people like me in prison. And he becomes a Christian anyway. Do you remember the first time that Paul goes to church in Jerusalem? You remember how that went over? He shows up, he walks in. There's no welcoming committee. There's no, hi, how you doing? Welcome to church. There is a, what are you doing here? We don't think you're a disciple of Jesus Christ. It was highly improbable that Saul of Tarsus would become a Christian. But he did. When Paul tells his story in Galatians chapter 1, he said, You know, I thought that I, I ought to do everything to destroy the church of God. But by the grace of God, Paul becomes a Christian. Now, if you think that's improbable, remember also the mission that Jesus Christ gave to Paul. Jesus says this to Ananias, the guy going to study with Paul or going to bring Paul to Christ. He says, I have chosen him to bring my name before the Gentiles. Now, if you think Paul's conversion was unlikely, his mission is all the more. Jesus says, this guy over here, Saul of Tarsus, the one who's a very educated Jew. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most respected rabbis of his day. I want to take this Jew, this this guy who will later in Philippians chapter 3 describe himself almost as a super Jew. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, circumcised the eighth day. I was a Pharisee. When it comes to the law, I was flawless. I was perfect. You know what Pharisees were? One of the things Pharisees did is they lived with this mission, if you will, to make Judaism great again. And Paul even had a hat to wear, I'm pretty sure. Because one of the things we do as Pharisees is we make it very clear who's in and who's out. Who's God's people, who's not God's people. In fact, the word Pharisee, we think, comes from a word that means kind of sect or set apart. So when you sit down to eat, you wash your hands. Why? Because Gentiles have touched that food and you want to be holy. So that when you go and you pass someone's house, you don't walk into the house of a Gentile. Why? Because they're not God's people. They're not clean. Jesus says, I want to take that guy, that super Jew, and I want him to carry the message of salvation to the Gentiles. You ever wonder if God has a sense of humor? Can you imagine Saul of Tarsus standing up and saying, if you're Gentile, God wants you. If you're in Christ... God has forgiven you. And look at the language of Ephesians chapter 3. The reason all this matters is because the way Paul describes himself, he says, I am the least of all saints. I tried to kill. I tried to imprison people just like you. And then if you look at verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 3, now his message is this, that Gentiles have become fellow heirs members of the same body and sharers in the promise in Jesus Christ through the gospel. You know how improbable that is that Saul of Tarsus says that. There's one other thing that's pretty remarkable about this text. When he starts chapter 3, he says, I am a prisoner for Jesus Christ and for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, scholars are divided over when exactly Ephesians was written and which imprisonment of Paul's this may have been. Paul was something of a jailbird. He spent a lot of time in and out of prison. But if you know the story of Saul well enough, then you might have echoes of an event in the book of Acts to which he may be referring. I want you to hold your finger here in Ephesians chapter 3 and turn back to Acts chapter 21. You see, when Saul becomes a Christian, that's pretty improbable. And when Saul begins preaching, he begins by going into a Jewish synagogue and trying to reach out to the Jewish community then. And then when the Jewish synagogue runs him out of town or runs him out of the synagogue, he then goes to the Gentile people in town. Those outcast, unloved, unaccepted people. And Paul goes and he says, God wants you to be heirs according to the promise. Saul gains something of a reputation in doing this. And when he goes to Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21, the church there tells him, look, so there are people claiming that you're just completely rejecting the Old Testament and completely rejecting our Jewish heritage. You need to do something about this. There were some men there in the church who had made a vow, and it was time for them to go to fulfill their vow. Paul says, I'll tell you what, I'll go to the temple with them. I'll even pay the vow. And so he makes the trip, and he goes to the temple, and here's what happens. Verse 27, when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia had seen him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd. They seized him shouting, fellow Israelites, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against our people, our law and this place. More than that, he has actually brought Gentiles into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now look at verse 29. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was aroused and the people rushed together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were slammed shut. You see, at the very thought, the very hint that Paul would bring a Gentile into the temple of God, completely panics the Jewish leadership. You know the temple, that place where Jesus said, My house shall be a house of prayer for whom? All nations. Not just Jewish people. The temple that Isaiah said in Isaiah 56, that one day foreigners will be allowed to go into the temple. And at the very hint that Paul has brought A Gentile. They panic and slam the gates of the temple. And they arrest Paul. One thing that's fascinating me about the story of Acts is it never tells you if Paul actually did that or not. It says they had seen him with Trophimus, this Gentile, and they supposed that he had brought him into the temple. But Luke never tells you, yeah, Paul really did it, or no, Paul didn't do it. And in none of Paul's defense does he ever say, look, I'm falsely accused because Trophimus was hanging out at Applebee's while I went to the temple. He never says that. You never know if Trophimus actually went to the temple with Paul or not. But one thing you do know is that's God's plan that he should have. He should. He was allowed all the rights and privileges to walk in and worship God in Jesus Christ. And look again, where's Trophimus from? Trophimus, the Ephesian. So when you turn to Ephesians chapter 3 and you hear Paul say, I, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ and... For the sake of you Gentiles, he's in jail because he refuses to compromise this truth that in Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile have equal standing before God. That in Jesus Christ, these distinctions of man and culture are rejected. And Paul won't back down from that. The most unlikely of people refuses to compromise on this truth that before God, anyone in Jesus Christ is fully accepted before God. And Paul says that's one of the reasons I'm sitting in jail. Because I'm not giving up on that. Paul describes this as a mystery of God that's been hidden through the ages. If you read your Bible close enough, you'll realize that there have been hints all along the way. When God called Abraham, He said, I'm going to bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you, and in your name, all nations of the earth will be blessed. Not just the Jewish nation. You see, a glimpse of this when God sends Jonah to go preach to Nineveh. Nineveh is not a Jewish country. And that's one of the reasons Jonah says, I'd rather go on a cruise. And that's one of the reasons Jonah pouts in Jonah chapter four. God, I knew that if I went to preach there, you'd forgive him. Jonah knew. God wanted to bless all nations. The hint is there when when Ruth, a Moabite, is found among the people of God. The hint is there in Isaiah when Isaiah says all nations will be allowed to worship into the temple of God. The hint is there in Matthew chapter one, when Jesus in his own genealogy has Gentiles listed among the people of God. The hint is there when Cornelius becomes a Christian. But Paul says this has been a mystery of God and he has chosen the most unlikely of vessels to make this known. And then there's this statement. When Paul describes what God is doing in the church, he explains it this way that this mystery that's been hidden through the ages, that Jews and Gentiles are allowed into the kingdom, that even Gentiles receive the fullness of blessing. Watch verse 10. So that through the church, through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety may now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that He has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Look, brothers and sisters, the church is not some plan B of God. The church is not some accidental organization once Jesus was going to be crucified. Paul says the church is part of the eternal purpose of God. Now, we've heard that verse, we've, we've heard preachers mention that verse The church is God's eternal purpose. You can't dismiss it. And that's true. But notice the eternal purpose of the church. Because the world is watching us. And God is using the church to show everyone the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. The angels are watching what happens among God's people. The powers around the world are watching to see what the church of God in Christ does. The leaders of our community are watching to see what the church of God does. And Paul says God's eternal purpose is to show the entire world what God's ultimate purpose in creation is. Remember Jim's sermon two weeks ago? That God's purpose is Ephesians chapter 1 to bring all things in heaven and on earth together in one place under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And Paul says God is starting to do that among the church. And the world is watching. The church is on display for everyone to see this is God's plan. And Paul says that's why if God is bringing heaven and earth together, you cannot be different. If God is joining heaven and earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ, there cannot be a Jewish church and a Gentile church. If God is bringing all things together you've got to start with yourself and be the body of Christ. Well Paul don't you realize that's going to upset some folks? I mean how are you going to win the gentiles or how are you going to win the Jews if you keep bringing the gentiles into the church? Let's let's just do this Paul let's give them their own church. Let's let them worship in their own place. We'll still call them brothers and sisters in Christ. We'll send them our used song books. We'll we'll send them some help from time to time and we'll still call them brothers and sisters in Christ. But but if we push the issue, Paul, then we might run people away. Paul says God is starting with the church and the world is watching. There cannot be a Jewish and Gentile church. If you cannot sit in the pew together, if you cannot blend your lives together, the world is not going to see what God is doing. It is the eternal purpose of God being worked out and lived out among His people. Now, Paul, that's not going to be popular. No, but it's going to be gospel. That God's plan is that Gentiles are called children of God. They are heirs according to the promise. In every way, there's no distinction. Because your salvation and your hope comes not in your ethnic background. It comes in the blood of Jesus Christ. The world's not going to understand that. But brothers and sisters, if anybody is... It's got to be the church of Jesus Christ. Because the world is watching. That's why you'll read in chapter 4, there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Because there's one Lord. There's one body. It's a remarkable message coming from, of all people, Saul of Tarsus. Who used to arrest Christians and do everything within his power to keep the purity of the Jewish faith clean from any outside foreign invasion? God says, Paul, I've got a different plan for you. I want to take you and I want to send you to convince the world that Gentiles are accepted in Jesus Christ. Do you love the way God works sometimes? This is one of those sermons that if I ended here, I'd be better off, I'm sure. But I don't think we're doing justice to the text if we leave it in the first century. No one has asked me to say what I'm about to say. But I feel it needs to be said. What Paul is calling us to in Ephesians chapter 3, brothers and sisters, is non-negotiable. This is not our church. This is His church. And He's told us what that church is to be like. And brothers and sisters, it's not easy. There has been a lot of conversation in the news, on Facebook, in publications recently about the church's reaction to everything that's happening around us. There is an open letter to the Christian Chronicle written by several leading prominent voices in the church, an open letter on race that points out how the church has failed to be the voice that God calls us to be in the past. We've not always done what we should. We were far too silent when we should have been standing up. Our colleges were segregated while we called ourselves the people of God. Our churches were segregated while we called our church the people of God. Too many publications were silent when we should have been standing up with the voice of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But One of my frustrations is that some people are very quick to point out past failings and not bold enough to say it won't happen again. And I know this is on some of your hearts because it's on your Facebook page. And I got to be honest, I'm troubled by some of the things that I see. It bothers me that our religious rhetoric sounds too much like the political rhetoric of our day. That when we voice our views and we voice our opinions about the nonsense that's happening in our culture, people think we're either Republican or Democrat. No one says, no, 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 that's the voice of a Christian. It must be distinct in how we talk about things. And if it's not, we're not talking about it correctly. It bothers me that the voice of the church is not distinct enough. I know that what's in the news has divided communities and it's left people scratching our head. And if you're not troubled by what's happening in the news, then you need to understand you're missing what's happening in the world. Forty-year-old man shot down and dead in Tulsa. And the explanations and the conversations begin to unfold. Who's responsible? Is it racism or is it not racism? Brothers and sisters, can I offer a few words of encouragement? The world is watching how we react. We must refuse to accept the false caricatures of people that the media tries to put out there. Not all police officers are racist, trying to kill people. And not all police officers are innocent. And members of our black community are not all thieves and thugs. And every young black man wearing a hoodie is not a criminal. And if you buy into the lies that media tells you and you fill your head with the false characters, you will cease to be the church of Jesus Christ. We see people for who they are. We must refuse to downplay the genuine suffering of people in our communities. Again, no one asked me to say this. So if this upsets you, it's me. It frustrates me to see people arguing over rhetoric instead of the reality. Black lives matter? No, all lives matter. You know which one's true? Both. When someone in a community says black lives matter, brothers and sisters, that means for them they feel left out and broken. I love what Josh Nichols said not long ago. He said it's, It's like going to a rally for breast cancer. And everyone's trying to raise money for breast cancer. And someone says, breast cancer, all cancer matters. If you have breast cancer, breast cancer matters to you. And if you're in a community that for so long has felt left out and felt voiceless, to walk up and hear them say, our lives matter, and to say, no, 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 every other life matters too it downplays and it cheapens the feeling of hurt and suffering. And if we get caught up in the rhetoric, we'll never find the solution to the false realities that are painted by others. When someone talks about the recent shootings, and they say, well, if he'd only do what the police officer asked him to do, he wouldn't be shot. Maybe. Maybe. But in our culture, there's too many times that that seems not to be the truth. And we cannot cheapen the sense of inequity and powerlessness in our culture. When someone says we've passed civil rights in our country, we ended slavery years ago, we ought to just get on with it. You're cheapening and downplaying the true hurting that's happening in our culture. The reality is there are people in our community who are hurting and genuinely scared. And if we are the church of Jesus Christ, we don't argue whether or not the facts out there justify their being scared. We deal with the reality that that's how they feel. A mutual friend of some of ours posted on Facebook recently, someone asked him, what are you going to do this weekend? His response was, I'm going to try not to become a hashtag. That's how they feel, brothers and sisters. And Paul says our work of the church is not to get tied up in the cultural skirmishes, but to step in with the reconciliation of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, the world is watching us. They're watching what we say at the office. They're watching how we treat people different than me. They're watching what we post on Facebook. And if our language is not covered in the blood of Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, then they're not going to see God's ultimate plan for the world. And it is the eternal purpose of Jesus Christ that we get this right. This is not a mission of the church, brothers and sisters. To Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, this is the mission of the church that Gentiles are fellow heirs, that salvation comes in Jesus Christ. And it's not just about race. Listen to the way we talk about refugees and immigrants. Listen to the way we treat the rich or the poor. And if our religious discourse sounds like the political discourse of our day, we've missed the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The world will not, because it cannot bring about peace and reconciliation. That only comes through Jesus Christ. It's a well-known statement, an often read letter. But in 1963, Martin Luther King found himself in prison in Birmingham. And unfortunately, some people Opposed the call that he was making for racial reconciliation. There's just one paragraph that I always come back to when I think of the times we live in. Dr. King wrote this. There was a time when the church was a very powerful, in the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early church entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven, called to obey God rather than men. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. So often it is an arch defender of the status quo. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things the way they are. I wish she was wrong about that. Well, I was 16 years old. I somehow got invited to preach at a youth rally in Arkansas. It was a predominantly black church that invited me to come speak. I showed up there and the preacher had not told the church that I was a white, very, very white, 16-year-old boy. I got out of the van of the car that we'd traveled in, and the brothers and sisters there at that community were shocked to see a very, very white young man. It was the most welcoming setting I've ever been in. And it was, unfortunately for me, the first time that I began to glimpse that we haven't got this white right quite yet. You see, I was invited to speak at this church, and there was another church in town, a predominantly white church in town, that had lots of youth and a bigger facility. And the church to which I'd been invited said, we've sent out invitations to everyone and they're not going to come. And so when Saturday came around and the youth rally was there, I was the only white guy in the room. And it wasn't because it wasn't because there were no other people in the community to come. It's because they would not come. And yet they call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ. Now, when I was 16, I didn't have a lot of sense either. You may find that hard to believe. So on Sunday morning, I was invited to preach for the church. There were, I said I was the only white person in the in the auditorium. There were two others. There were friends of mine who traveled with me. They were sitting off on the far right side of the pulpit. And I got up that morning... Sixteen year old boy and I said, if you're a member of a black church, don't ever expect to see the gates of heaven. And they reacted just like you. Has he lost his ever loving mind? (laughs) Because, you know, our our brothers and sisters in the black community, they're more vocal and they they like to encourage, especially young, terrible preachers. Preach on and amen. There was nothing And then I said, if you're a member of a white church, don't ever expect to see the gates of heaven. And by this time, my friend who had come with me was trying to find his way under the pew. (laughs) And at this moment, the brothers and sisters in that auditorium realized what I was saying. And that's when they said, amen, preach on. And then it worried me. Why are they amending that one and not the other one? (laughs) Because the church of Jesus Christ is not black or white. And if you are a member of a black church, you're not going to see heaven. And if you're a member of a white church, you will not see heaven because the church of Jesus Christ offers every spiritual blessing in Christ, not in our color. And our culture doesn't get that. The day I preached at that church in Arkansas, my home church was having a funeral for one of our elders. His name was Jabbo Lawson. I wish I knew the story in the late 70s. Jabbo became an elder. A small, rural community. A black man was appointed an elder of a church. Jabo and Lena Bell were were my glimpse into the world of race. We used to go to Jabo and Lena Bell's house quite often because she'd invite us over and we'd eat fried chicken. She called us her vanilla kids and we called her chocolate mama. I couldn't go to Jabo's funeral that day because I was ironically preaching in a predominantly black church. You know, there were brothers and sisters of their own community who told them, Why are you worshiping with those white people? They felt it too. What I felt from the white church in the community of Arkansas, Jabo and Lena Bell felt from their community in McLeod, Oklahoma. We have not done a good job at this in the past, brothers and sisters. But God calls us to be his voice, his church, to share his gospel because the world is watching. Because it is the eternal purpose of God to make known to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places this gospel of Jesus Christ. And it begins with us. God, help us be faithful in that calling. Paul writes this sitting in a jail because he's not going to compromise the gospel of Jesus Christ. A gospel that says it does not matter who you are, where you're from, or what you look like. In Christ you can have faith and grace, forgiveness and redemption and the Spirit of God. And we offer that invitation to you this morning. We want you in the body of Christ to be part of God's eternal purpose to show the world what's around the corner. And we offer that invitation in the name of Jesus this morning as together we stand and sing.